2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When cities and towns name public streets after native sons and daughters, what characteristics about the person are weighed? In 1994, the city of New Britain named a street after late Mayor Paul Manafort Sr. But over the last year, the designation has been caught up in scandal after Manafort's son, Paul Jr., the former campaign manager for Donald Trump, was indicted and pled guilty recently to tax fraud. In September, Democratic council members in New Britain voted to rename Manafort Drive drive, but City Mayor Aaron Stewart vetoed the bill. However, the politics surrounding efforts to drop the Manafort name has brought attention to a lesser known name in Connecticut history, Ebenezer Bassett. Later we'll tell you more about Bassett, the first African-American to serve as a U.S. diplomat. Now, Election Day is less than one month away, and nationwide the number of registered voters has increased, among them are young people. Historically, they haven't voted in large numbers. What will it take to get the 18 and over crowd to turn out on Election Day? Is a more robust civics education key to changing the trends? We'll find out. That's just ahead. But first, Joe Lieberman. Love him or hate him, Connecticut's former U.S. Senator is on a list to become the ambassador to the United Nations. What will it take for Lieberman to be confirmed? Joining us now with more is Ron Shurin, associate professor in residence at the Yukon Department of Political Science. Ron, welcome back to the show. Good morning. So tell us first the responsibilities of the U.N. ambassador. What are they?
3: Well, the U.N. ambassador is uh, the the formal title is Permanent Representative of the United States of America to the United Nations with the rank and status of Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary and Representative of the United States to the Security Council of the United Nations. A very long title. But essentially, he is our chief diplomat on the international stage. He or she.
2: Uh, now I understand that this is a cabinet-level position. Didn't always be, wasn't always that way.
3: Right, it has altered. Uh, president Eisenhower was the first president to give cabinet status to the UN ambassador. His UN ambassador, Henry Cabot Lodge, was uh, a major American political figure. Had been a major figure in the Eisenhower for President campaign. Uh, several presidents continued that. The Bush administration discontinued that. And uh, the reason that they did that was, according to John Bolton, who at the time was, uh, for a brief period, President Bush's U.N. ambassador, two reasons. One, Bolton was essentially anti-U.N., didn't believe much in it, thought it gave the U.N. too much status. Also, he thought there was an irrationality to having two cabinet members from the same department, the State Department. President Obama restored that status, and and, uh, President Trump has continued it. Mm
2: Uh, we know through reports that uh, Nikki Haley uh, plans to resign at the end of the year. Yes. Several names are being floated. Politico reported uh, late uh, last week the list includes two women, Jamie McCourt, Kelly Knightcraft uh, Both are confirmed ambassadors. But uh, former Senator Joe Lieberman is also on this list. Uh, why is he on the list, Ron?
3: Well, let me, let me begin by saying there was a columnist in The New York Times, William Sapphire, who wrote a column once about this shady washington figure called the great mentioner and the great mentioner is this very powerful person nobody knows who it is who can mention names for key positions and somehow the great mentioner has mentioned the names you indicated joe lieberman and some others uh... joe lieberman is uh, every republicans favorite democrat it should be said though that he's his relationship to the democratic party has become increasingly tenuous although he did uh, not too vociferously endorse Hillary Clinton against President Trump in the last election. Uh, Lieberman has experience in a legislative body, which could be of use in in the United Nations. Lieberman is a strong supporter of Israel, which aligns him with the Trump administration, and which would be a position that the Trump administration would want to be taking at the UN. Uh, he has a reputation or a history of being a kind of skeptical internationalist not an isolationist he supported nafta he supported the w t o when we went into the iraq war lieberman said to the effect of uh, we ought to try to get u n support for this endeavor but if we don't get it we ought to go ahead anyway so so in all those areas in some ways is a little different from the trump administration and in some ways right aligned with them uh, the Ambassadorship has been a uh, a position that people sometimes get on the way up and sometimes get on the way down and uh, you know some some eminent names have held that position, and whether Lieberman fits in that class, that category uh, I was looking at the list Adlai Stevenson, former Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg, George H. W. Bush on his way ultimately to the presidency, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, Madeleine Albright, and others. Um, Lieberman would be kind of at the lower level of that class of well-known political figures.
2: Uh, on the phone with me is Ron Shuren, Associate Professor in Residence at the Yukon Department of Political Science. Uh, as we talk about uh, Joe Lieberman here on Where We Live, he's on a list uh, to replace uh, U.S. Uh, Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley. And we were asking Ron about, you know, what is it about Lieberman uh, that would make him a likely candidate to be confirmed? You mentioned um, some of the reasons uh, why uh, Joe Lieberman, uh, uh, some of his stances that would go along with... Uh, uh, Trump administration, but there's also some other uh, key differences about uh, where he would diverge. Um, mm-hmm. And also, when we think about uh, climate change, I mean, this is something that yeah. uh, Donald Trump uh, <laughs> administration, right. uh, uh, they often discount. So I'm just curious about some of the things that could p- work against Joe Lieberman.
3: Well, yeah, you know, uh, in many ways, Joe Lieberman ran against the uh, Democratic uh, overarching views, but not on environment that was one of his strong points way back to the two thousand campaign and and before in his time in the senate so that would be a very problematic area because of course climate change is an international issue and calls for international solutions so where lieberman would stand on that uh, in terms of representing the trump administration is, is problematic uh, I... I, you know, I again the the great mentioner has mentioned Joe Lieberman's name for for many many positions, and and he's still now at age 76, probably waiting for his final act. Whether this will be it is, I think, somewhat doubtful.
2: So what happens next, Ron? We know he he's on this list, and yeah. um, how will this work in terms of uh, when uh, President Trump may put forth uh, his choice, and how it needs to be confirmed by the Senate?
3: Yeah, uh, the president, was, Nikki Haley, is going to be there until the end of the year, so the president has some time. Um, perhaps would want to have somebody in who could be confirmed by the Senate before the end of this legislative session, although that's not vital. President Bush named John Bolton, who is now uh, President Trump's chief Foreign policy advisor uh, to the UN, and Bolton could not win Senate confirmation but served for a year and a half uh, as a, essentially a research appointment, a re, uh, yeah, an interim appointment without that. Um, so uh, I don't think that there's a, an extremely tight timeline, but I assume something would happen within the next month or so.
2: And if you're wondering what uh, Senator Lieberman, former Senator Lieberman, has been doing uh, since he retired from the Senate, he now practices law as a senior lawyer for a firm in New York City. Uh, you mentioned that he has been mentioned, uh, Ron Schurin on this list of candidates. Has Lieberman commented at all on the fact that he's, his name is out there?
3: Uh, not to my knowledge. He may have, but I have I have not seen that. Uh, I, generally, he says things like, I'm honored to be considered whenever his name comes up, and he's probably said the same thing regarding this position. Uh, there's another Connecticut name on that list that I should mention. Those who follow Connecticut politics probably remember the name Christopher Burnham, who was Connecticut State Treasurer uh, in the first Roland term. Uh, resigned, went to work for uh, in financial services, then became a... Uh, an assistant secretary of state in the Bush administration, and then served as UN undersecretary general for management, where uh, where he did some good work, uh, getting financial disclosure forms filled out for the first time at the UN, and uncovering a, 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 some scandals in in the oil for peace program. Uh, so his name has been has been um, mentioned in this connection as well.
2: Ron an Associate Professor in Residence at the Yukon Department of Political Science. Ron, thanks for your time today. We appreciate sure. it. Sure. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nothoth Coming up, midterm elections historically have low voter turnout, but will November's election be different? Gallup's recent poll on voter enthusiasm shows voters are more enthusiastic about voting than usual. How will that translate on November 6th, especially among young people? More on that after the break, and you can join us too, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Only nine states and Washington, D.C. require one year of government or civics instruction in school. Why does this matter? Young people vote less often than older Americans. In 2016, only half of eligible adults between the ages of 18 and 29 voted in the presidential election. And two years earlier, during the midterms, just 20 percent of young people voted. Writer for The Atlantic, Aaliyah Wong, examined young voter turnout in a recent story and writes, troubling voting rates follow decades of declining civics education. What do you think? Do schools wait too long to teach students about government and policy in the U.S.? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Aaliyah Wong joins us now by phone again. She's staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers education and families. Aaliyah, welcome to the show. Good morning. So tell us first what piqued your interest in covering this particular uh, story.
4: Well, I think uh, there's been growing
2: recognition that the political climate right now,
4: the polarization, the division, this sort of post-truth moment that we're in, uh, can't be divorced from the lack of civics education in school. And uh, We've seen this time and time again uh, with each election, people uh, arrive at these standstills uh, with regards to ideological debates and people can't seem to, to get past them. And a lot of it comes down to this reality that they have very limited exposure to how to engage in a civic society.
2: I was uh, recently uh, able to see a naturalization ceremony uh, before a Hartford Symphony Orchestra uh, concert, and the federal judge made a joke to the audience that uh, the people being naturalized uh, know more about uh, U.S. government uh, than most Americans. I was thinking of that Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship survey that found one in three Americans would even pass a U.S. citizenship test, ALEA.
4: Right. I mean, it's, it's appalling, but, but that's true. was a recent survey of uh, 1,000 Americans, nationally representative sample, um, almost all of them uh, American-born, and just one in three could pass it, and it's not hard to pass. It's not like you have to get a perfect score. Uh, so it's, it's pretty surprising to see that, especially when considering upwards of 90% of uh, naturalized citizens pass it.
2: Could you give us an example of some of the questions that you cited in your story, Alia? Sure. So one of them, uh, it gave a f- few examples of states, among
4: them Maine, uh, South Dakota, and asked them um, which one of these states borders Canada. So that was a it was a pretty obvious question if you just kind of think logically about that. But uh, the passage rate on that question probably wasn't uh, the best. And there was a question about when was the Constitution ratified, uh, which was 1788, for those of you who are kind of scratching your heads, but just uh, 13% of respondents could answer that. And fewer than half could uh, identify the countries that the U.S. fought in, the, in World War II.
2: When you look at uh, where civics education has gone in this country, Aaliyah, you write that you can trace it back to the '60s, where there was a decline. Do we know why that is?
4: We really don't, and I'd love to look more into that after doing this story. But it's—it's it's really was this quite rapid decline after the '60s, um, which leading the decades leading up to that was kind of this golden era of civics education. They had typically three required h- courses in high school. Um, you know, it was it was very much baked into the fabric of the curriculum, and then after that, uh, you know, we just see this this decline and this uh, uh, departure from from that core curriculum.
2: I mentioned earlier uh, in the segment that only nine states and uh, DC require one year of government or civics classes in high school. Um, So I'm just curious. So if if a a state uh, wanted to um, see more civics education, it's really up to that particular state. There is nearly no. Is there anything going on nationally that would encourage states to think about um, how they educate their citizens? Well, there's no sort of
4: national policy, but there has been a a third-party, I guess, initiative. It's been spearheaded by a nonprofit called the Joe Foss Institute, and what it's been trying to do is make the passage of the citizenship test, the one uh, adults today perform so poorly on, and make that a graduation requirement, so students at public schools who uh, want to get their high school diploma, they have to show that they can pass the test in order to graduate. And uh, that has actually had a lot of success. Today, 29 states uh, have implemented at least some version of it. Some haven't made it a full-blown graduation requirement, but uh, instead have basically made it a requirement that schools report the test score data, which in turn is seen as as at least one step forward in uh, holding them accountable for that.
2: This is where we live. On the phone with me, Aaliyah Wong, staff writer at The Atlantic. She wrote a a recent story about uh, voter turnout being low among young people and why that is. And she looked into how civics education in uh, the United States has really declined. And with that, you're seeing low voter turnout, especially among young people. So we wanted to ask our listeners, is this something uh, that you see in the education your children are receiving. Uh, Do you think that you got a good civics education when you were in school? Join the conversation 860-275-7266. I wanted to bring into the discussion Sally Whipple, executive director of Connecticut's old state house. Sally, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Uh, so we were we were talking about uh, nationwide uh, seeing a decline in voting, the fact that voter turnouts low among young people. Only nine states and District of Columbia require one year of civics education. Uh, what is Connecticut's
5: requirement? Well, Connecticut right now, um, I think since 2004, requires a semester of civics at the high school level. And that was put in place largely through the efforts of Secretary of the State Denise Merrill. Um, but Today, what's happened is um, in 2015, the State Department of Education put together a social studies framework for the state, which isn't required, but it, it it creates a wonderful guideline for how to teach social studies in the schools. And I like it because it really infuses um, the whole school career with civics lessons and history lessons and brings them together in a way that's very meaningful. So the social studies frameworks really focus on the idea of an inquiry arc where students and teachers ask compelling questions and then do the research to answer those questions, analyze those questions, and present those questions. Uh, But the wonderful thing is that it takes another step yet, and that is encouraging students to take informed action. And that is, you you know you know that you um, learn by doing, you know that if you don't use something, you lose it. So enabling students to take what they've learned and apply it, to take the skills that they've learned, which could be things like persuasion, to take the knowledge that they've learned, um, and to take the disposition that they've learned, how to have a civil argument or discussion. um, And then pull those all together, all of those tools together to perform civic action is a really valuable thing. And I hope it will lead to increased Mm -hmm. voting.
2: So before 2015, the only requirement was one semester junior year
5: in Connecticut public schools? Yeah, yeah. So we're on a really good path. And I think a few wonderful things have happened in Connecticut that really help support these frameworks, and that is that in 2011, the Secretary of the State entered us into a program where we had a Civic Health Index report for the state of Connecticut done, which showed us who was voting, all kinds of information about civic health. But the greatest thing that happened was a group of advisors came together to form the Civic Health Advisory Group. And that sort of informed a lot of nonprofits and agencies about how we were doing, how our report card was for the state, not just for students but for adults. So now, for the first time ever, we I think we really have a, a strong network of civic groups who are making programs available to teachers to use in the classroom and are um, even um, uh, providing after-school and out-of-school experiences for students. So I feel like we have – a, sort of a safety net for civics in place in Connecticut to help the schools.
2: Mm. Um, when you look at, um, you know, what Connecticut has in, had in place prior to 2015 and now that you mentioned there is this uh, initiative to get social studies more um, a part of a public school
5: curriculum, why was it pushed to the side? You know, I don't know why it was pushed to the side. I think it probably it just wasn't se- wasn't going to be something that was tested. It was something that maybe People thought kids just naturally absorbed, I don't know. Um, But I think that the decision to make it something that we pay attention to has been really important for the state. And I'm not sure um, why civics fell out of favor throughout the country.
2: Aaliyah Wong, I'll go back to you again, staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, Aaliyah covers education and families. Uh, When you were looking at the states that have a more robust civics education like Florida, uh, when are they learning about social studies and civics?
4: Yeah, well, I think uh, what she just described, I think, really aligns with some of the best models out there to cite Florida's. Uh, experiment uh, a couple of years ago, it decided to really uh, strengthen the focus on civics, uh, not just by creating a full-year requirement uh, that had actually a high-stakes test attached to it, but also implementing it at the middle school level uh, in recognition of the fact that this is something that this is knowledge and these are skills that need to really be integrated into a student's everyday life from an early age for them to have that intrinsic appreciation for and sort of instinct um, for it later in life. And so I think uh, when it when it's best, it's almost invisible, I think. Uh, really seeing it as this sort of seamless, uh, having this seamless role, not just in social studies class, but also in science. If, if fourth graders are learning about water pollution, they can inv- incorporate a civics uh, lesson on, you know, how to act on that pollution and make it cleaner. Uh, you, in a sort of literacy class on, uh, say, they're reading a passage about Native Americans, they might incorporate uh, some sort of lesson on... On their role in American society and how they've been marginalized over the decades and centuries, so I think uh, just really seeing it not just as this siloed subject, but as this uh, basically this almost this mentality or this worldview that can be woven into every aspect of school is is uh,
2: a big uh, a very kind of consistent characteristic across the courses that seem to work best. Ali, you mentioned Florida as an example. Is there a correlation uh, since they've been teaching civics much earlier, say in middle school instead of high school, that they're seeing uh, young people as they graduate um, becoming more engaged voters? Is there data there that shows they're voting? There's not data yet, and I would love to see the data
4: once it's available. I think because it's such a new initiative, they haven't yet had the evidence base to really make that argument. But there is a lot of evidence that shows that a quality civics education uh, has a uh, can predict uh, voter turnout rates. So there is that connection. And relatedly, there's also evidence that having a requirement like the one in place in Florida, which has a high stakes test attached to it, that uh, civic knowledge and civic engagement uh, uh, is improved. So if you kind of connect the dots there, uh, there is sort of a compelling argument to be made that this model can actually see results at the voting booth.
2: Uh, This is where we live. Today we're talking about uh, whether stronger civics education uh, leads to a more informed voter, especially among young people, as uh, the statistics show, uh, despite a high registration uh, before the midterms in less than a month, that often uh, young people aren't voting despite being registered, despite sounding like they're engaged on social media. And I guess that's my next question, Um, Aaliyah. As we look at uh, young people and whether they're going to vote on November 6th, does social social media play a role at all in helping them get to the polls that day? It's hard to say.
4: I mean, it seems like we've had um, youth galvanized around politics for years now. But if you look at the voter turnout, youth voter turnout rate in the 2016 election, which obviously was a very emotional and divisive election, uh, only, uh, let's see, only uh, half of eligible adults between the ages of 18 and 29 actually voted. So, if that election didn't really seem to, to translate that social media activism into actual voter turnout, uh, it's not. I'm not very confident that we're going to see the same result this time. Uh, but back to the Florida example, I mean, it, a lot of people have pointed out uh, it's civics requirement in arguing that it does, it it can really play a role given all the activism we saw from the Parkland students and the the movement, the national movement that they spearheaded. Uh, And we are seeing uh, some polling data uh, recently that that indicates that we might see an uptick in turnout. Uh, One poll that I was looking at actually indicated that a third of youth voters will actually cast ballots, so that's pretty promising. But again, we won't know until
2: the actual election comes. You can join our conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 275 Michael is calling from Meriden. Michael, go ahead.
1: Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment that, uh, you know, when I was in the civics class in high school, it was very brief. And uh, I did get interested in it, though, and afterwards have been a, a regular voter. Um, but I think that our voter turnout in the United States is pretty embarrassing, in, in particular because... Um, we're supposed to be like a beacon of, of political power in the world, and you have some foreign countries that have nearly 100 percent of voter turnout, and it, it, we should be the ones that lead that pack, and we really don't. Um, and really, in my, in my families and friends, if, if somebody's complaining about uh, the president or complaining about a, 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 a politician or something, the first thing I ask them is, did you vote? Because if you didn't vote, you really have no voice.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Michael, for your call. Before we let you go, do you have kids? And if so, are you happy with the, the civics that they are possibly getting in school?
1: Well, I have a one and a half year old <laughs> okay. son, so he's not ready yet. But, <laughs> but, um, but you'll be but for- when he is, I definitely will.
2: You'll be before your school board asking for a more robust civics education. Thank you, Michael, uh, for your call. I wanted to turn back to Sally Whipple, who's also here, executive director of Connecticut's old state house. Um, Sally, did you want to comment on what Michael was saying? And in terms of uh, we talked earlier about how um, uh, some Americans may not even be able to pass the U.S. citizenship test. There are efforts to get that uh, put in certain states where where students have to actually pass that as part of their graduation requirements. What's your take on that?
5: Well, I think it's a good idea for students to be able to pass that. I think there's important information about history and civics in there that everybody should know. But I really do believe that um, doing is the best way to learn how to be a good citizen. And I think um, we run a program um, called Connecticut's Kid Governor, and we believe that you have to start students very young. So this is a fifth-grade program where um, students – Um, who want to run for kid governor have to pick an issue they care about, research it, figure out a way to solve it, develop a three-point plan to solve it, and have a campaign video. And then fifth graders from across the state register to vote and elect a kid governor. And we've had three so far. And we find that the excitement that is generated at the fifth grade level is really wonderful. Kids have the experience of voting, and they understand it. And when they're leaving fifth grade, they want to vote in the future, and we don't haven't been able to track how that works out because we haven't done the program long enough to get kids to voting age. But we see that the excitement from the fifth graders extends to the fourth graders and high school students as well who have been involved in the program. So I think that if we can get to a point where the kids are knowing, they have the knowledge that's in that citizenship test, but also know how to go out and use that knowledge to affect change – Will be in a much better place and more likely to have students, young people voting.
2: Uh, Michael's calling where we live from New Mexico. Michael, go ahead.
6: Hey, uh, as someone who was in our public schools uh, during the 60s, when you uh, commented that participation fell off and you couldn't figure out why, well, I think that a lot of us perceived that we were not being told the truth uh in our history books and and that the and that the cynicism you know and our government classes we thought oh those poor kids over in russia and communist china their governments brainwash them and then we began to perceive that we were also being fed a load of hui in our uh you know, coming out of the 50s and the McCarthyism and the hip, hip, ray flag-waving stuff, it wasn't consistent with uh, what we were looking around and seeing. Aren't we the greatest country? We're so equal. And then we saw the civil rights and the riots and the assassinations. And so part of it was the cynicism, you know, that just people turned away. And the other thing is I wanted to comment that, we say, oh, isn't this too bad that the fall off in participation? Well, no, it's, it's very good if you happen to be the party in power. The guy who lives on Pennsylvania Avenue commented how much he loves the poorly educated. And uh, it works out very good for the Republican Party to gut education, withdraw funding, and turn out a bunch of dumbies that will not bother their little heads about getting involved in uh government and voting that works out very well for the people that now hold every branch of our government. Well
2: Michael thank you for your call. I wanted to go back to uh Leah Wong who's a staff writer at the Atlantic. Leah we heard uh, Michael calling uh talking about a uh, cynicism uh leading people to not have faith in the process. What about today? Could that hurt what we might see in turnout on November 6th?
4: Absolutely. And I think he actually hinted at two really important points that I think are important to underscore. One being, um, especially at a time like now, just the trickiness of of teaching civics when it's so hard not to mix in politics, because politics are very much the bread and butter of civic engagement and civic affairs. So uh, it can get really dicey. And I think that's one reason a lot of schools and teachers are a little little hesitant to really give a lot of attention to it because they uh, are kind of uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place and how uh, far to go in delivering civic education that is relevant to current affairs but not uh, try to insert your own views or alienate certain students. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the second point that he hints at uh, is, is just you know really reiterates the un- importance of inquiry-based learning that resists the kind of sort of traditional model of dictating rote facts and instead more focused on having the students direct their learning and ask questions that genuinely intrigue them and then uh, apply their critical thinking skills. To that process, and I think that's really the kind of civic education that is most effective. But I think, you know, cynicism is, is a big reason people don't go to the, um, don't cast their ballots these days. I, I know I've heard from a lot of uh, youth and, and young adults that they just don't think their their vote matters, and that again is where civic education uh, can be really important because it, it gives kids from an early age, this intrinsic appreciation for that participation.
2: I wanted to uh, get Sally Whipple's thoughts um, on what you said, Aaliyah. Again, Sally's here, Executive Director of Connecticut's Old State House. On the first uh, point that Aaliyah made uh, about uh, teachers maybe being hesitant to uh, want to incorporate civics into their class, whether it's a requirement or not, because of uh, the sensitivity of not wanting to sound like you're partisan to one side or the other, is that something that you hear from educators about?
5: Yeah, that's a a real issue today that people are talking about. In fact, um, we've worked with um, the Department of Education Social Studies to help teachers figure out ways to approach this in the classroom. What I find is that the teachers are really pretty good about it. Um, They understand um, the questions that the students are going to come into the class with, and a really good teacher will help students explore those questions and think about those questions. And I think one of the um, most valuable tools in thinking about issues today is really talking um, talking about historical context, talking about how we got here. And we find at the old state house, even with adult programs, sometimes if you begin with a historical issue that relates to today, it makes it safer for people to talk about it and makes it easier to come into a conversation. But I think. That that is an important issue. That it, it's hard to talk about that at the history um, about civics at the Thanksgiving table. It's not any easier in the classroom. It's something that has to be nav- navigated. We just have a couple of
2: minutes left, uh, Sally, and I, I did want to ask you um, when we talk about uh, conversations today and how uh, oftentimes they're not civil, depending on which side uh, someone um, is arguing. Is that being? Taught in schools? Is there a way where uh, children and uh, adolescents, teenagers, are learning that you know, civil discourse—that that's an important part of of uh, where we need to be?
5: Yeah, they absolutely are. That is something that teachers are working on: how to have good dialogues in the classroom. Um, We've worked with students on regional conversations. We had a wonderful experience in Enfield, where the students there invited students from Suffield and Springfield to come to their school. And talk about difficult conversations and the students themselves led the conversations and i was really um happy to see how well the students questioned each other and listened very respectfully and i thought that they created a great model for adult conversations but there are a lot of things um, conversations like that going on in the schools and a lot of organizations in connecticut like everyday democracy and um, the Yukon Humanities Program doing things like that.
2: Well, I want to thank, again, Sally Whipple, Executive Director of Connecticut's Old State House, a great resource uh, for uh, all state residents. And we're going to tweet out links to some of the initiatives at the Old State House that you mentioned, Sally. Thanks for your time c- for coming in today. Thank you. Also, thanks to Aaliyah Wong, staff writer at The Atlantic. We'll tweet out a link to her story at Where We Live. Aaliyah, thanks. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, have you heard of Ebenezer Bassett? There are local efforts to honor the Derby native who played a diplomatic role for the U.S. More about him after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, during the first half of the 20th century, American parents often worried, will my child survive polio? Today, it's a disease that's inches away from extinction. On the next Where We Live, why does it still persist despite a worldwide vaccination campaign? We'll explore that tomorrow. Now, when cities and towns name public streets after native sons and daughters, what characteristics about the person are weighed? In the mid-90s, the city of New Britain named a street after late Mayor Paul Manafort Sr. But over the last year, this designation has been caught up in scandal after Manafort's son Paul Jr., the former campaign manager for Donald Trump, pled guilty recently for tax fraud. Now, the scandal led some to start a petition to get New Britain leaders to change the street name. And in September, the Democratic council members voted to rename Manafort Drive, but New Britain Mayor Aaron Stewart vetoed the bill. However, the politics surrounding efforts to drop the Manafort name has brought attention to a lesser-known person in Connecticut history. And that man is Ebenezer Bassett. To tell us more, joining me in studio is Janet Woodruff. She's affiliated with the Center for Africana Studies at Central Connecticut State University, and Dr. Evelyn Newman Phillips, who's an anthropologist and serves as the director of the Center for Africana Studies at Central Connecticut State University. Both uh, Janet and Evelyn, welcome to the show.
7: Thank you. Thank you.
2: I'll start with you, Janet. Tell us about Ebenezer Bassett, and, and where did he grow up, and what did he do?
7: Um, Ebenezer Bassett was born in 1833 and grew up in Derby, Connecticut, where he went to the public schools um, as an African-American student. Uh, The public schools in Derby were integrated uh, in the 1840s and 50s, which was quite progressive for the time, and in 1852, he became the first African-American student at the New Britain Normal School, which was the parent institution of Central Connecticut State University. Uh, he graduated in 1853, taught school in New Haven, and began his career as an activist and an orator, speaking out for abolition uh, alongside his friend, Frederick Douglass. In 1855, Mr. Bassett moved to Philadelphia to become principal of the institution that became Cheney University, the first historically black college in the US. And he continued his activism and his speaking out. When the Civil War began, he was one of the foremost speakers um, who were petitioning to allow African-American men to join the Union Army. He was very successful in this endeavor, as we know, and um, continued on still um, as the principal of this institution until 1869, when in recognition of everything he'd done to support the Union Army by recruiting soldiers, President Ulysses Grant appointed Mr. Bassett as the the first African American to hold a diplomatic minister resident post, which is uh, the early term for ambassador. So he was the first African American alumnus of Connecticut's first public institution of higher education. He was principal at the school that became the first historically black college, and he was also first African-American to become a U.S. ambassador.
2: He was also a friend of Frederick Douglass. Tell us about how he got to know him.
7: Uh, he and Frederick Douglass met in New Haven when they were both um, speaking out in favor of abolition of African captivity. And they maintained a friendship and a working relationship throughout their lives. Um, when Mr. Frederick Douglass, uh, later on in the eighteen 18- late 1870s, I believe, was appointed as the next diplomat to Haiti, uh, which is where Bassett had been assigned. Mr. Bassett went with him and um, served as his secretary there, helping introduce him to the language, the culture, and the people of Haiti.
2: This is a very accomplished man. I'll turn uh, to my other guest, Dr. Evelyn Newman-Phillips. I should mention that both of you are part of a committee to memorialize uh, Bassett's contributions uh, uh, here in Connecticut. But why is he someone we haven't heard of before, Evelyn?
0: I think one of the reasons that we haven't heard of him is primarily because if we look at our history books as your former um, segment talked about. So little of the information is really representative of all the people in the community. And African American and other people of color has often been missing in terms of our text and understanding of what their contributions have been. I, I want to think that even for myself, uh, I did not know about this man until the work of William Fothergill, who is at the university. He's a counselor uh, in the Counseling Wellness Center, but his own interest and passion is one who brought our awareness in terms of Bassett's contribution.
2: I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a lot of uh, talk and about uh, renaming uh, Manafort Drive and uh, later on the Democratic uh, <coughs> Controlled Caucus of the Council um, suggested that this, uh, this street should actually be uh, named after Ebenezer Bassett because he's an alum of uh, Central Connecticut State University uh, when it was pr- previously known as the Connecticut State Normal School. Uh, but what are some other efforts underway way, um, because the the street name's one thing, but to memorialize this man that grew up in Connecticut, how should he be remembered, Evelyn?
0: Well, one of the things that we have not really participated so much in the naming of the street because we felt this was an issue for the city of New Britain. And so the work of the committee has really been to help facilitate the fostering of retention among students of color, uh, sometimes men in particular, to really also uh, think about naming an academic building after him. We're building a scholarship as well. And to, on uh, t- tomorrow evening, we will be having a community meeting at Spotswood A.M.E. Design Church to talk about how should he, how does the community really want to uh, remember his legacy? And so the committee really felt the issue in New Britain was a political issue. Uh, that we were not really engaged, and we want to bring awareness to our own students who Ebenezer Bassett is. We have a banner by Memorial Hall, but we don't. Many students don't know who he is. Such an alum as, as Ebenezer Bassett, I think everyone should know his contribution. Remember, this man was a a person whose parents were enslaved in the United States and is able to gain such notoriety through his own wit and the community support, why not let us remember his legacy?
2: I wanted to turn back uh, to Janet Woodruff again. Uh, she's also with uh, uh, affiliated with the Center for African Studies at CCSU. Uh, we were talking about um, ways to engage the community uh, to uh, mention uh, to remember that yeah, you know he's affiliated with CCSU as well. But what about the public schools? Uh, we were talking about again wider civics education earlier. Uh, but this is a man that uh, was born in Litchfield County, grew up in Derby, had a, a place uh, in history in New Britain. Um, Why why isn't there more of an effort to know these uh, historical
7: figures statewide, Janet? That is an important part of what we want to eventually accomplish. Ebenezer Bassett belongs in history books. Ebenezer Bassett belongs in our state's curriculum. Um, And it's uh, a difficult conversation, but for a very long time, uh, it was— completely obliterated. The history of African captivity in Connecticut wasn't acknowledged. And um, as Evelyn said, Ebenezer Bassett's family were captive in Connecticut. And it's, it flies in the face of the myth that we've put up about a free abolitionist state and we need to acknowledge what came before that movement for abolition.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, you had mentioned uh, uh, the different uh, points in his life. Uh, after he was, again, the first uh, uh, first U.S. African-American diplomat, he resigned uh, in 1877 with the conclusion of, of the presidency um, of Grant and went on to serve as Haitian Consul General in
7: New York. So how did he spend the rest of his life in Connecticut? Um, he did move into New York, he was living in New York, um, and going back and forth in between, working for the Haitian consulate, and he was the first non-Haitian person to hold a position there that had traditionally always been um, a Haitian representative. But he had made a tremendous impression during his several years in the post. and. Um, As I'd mentioned, when Frederick Douglass became the uh, diplomat in Haiti, he went back and assisted his dear friend with um, the diplomacy that Bassett himself had learned by experience.
0: I think Uh, it's important to remember that uh, Bassett spoke the language which Frederick Douglass did not. So that's why Douglas relied upon him so much.
2: Do we know uh, where um, uh, Mr. Bassett is buried
7: in Connecticut?
0: In New Haven.
7: Yes, he's in the Grove Street Cemetery in New Haven.
2: And how did he end up in New Haven?
7: His wife, Mm -hmm. uh, Eliza Park, was from New Haven. Mm -hmm. And um, that, I think, um, he met her when he was teaching there. I think that was why. The family went there. He and his wife are both buried there, and all of their children.
2: I'd mentioned that both of you are on the memorialization committee for Ebenezer uh, D. Bassett. Uh, So, what are the next steps, uh, Evelyn, uh, to remember this man?
0: Uh, I think that the next step is kind of combination. Is because we're still doing raising money for the scholarship. Uh, We are highlighting uh, people in the community and making them aware. But I think the main thing, we want the university to name an academic uh, center uh, in his honor. We have one building that's called the Social Science Hall that has not been named after an individual. And so we have been petitioning the uh, CSU system for that honor. I should mention, we're
2: talking about uh, Ebenezer Bassett the day before his birthday, October 16th. Uh, uh, what's in, what's uh, being planned to remember uh, this man, Janet?
7: We do have an annual celebration for him. We usually have a uh, birthday party during the day in which students participate. Um, and it's just a fun event, and that's intended to raise awareness because that's the first step, making sure students know. Students are tremendously important to this because they have the perspective that he had with the institution. He came as a student and his legacy goes straight back to the students now. Um, We do have biennial awards, community humanitarian awards, at which we recognize prominent members of the community who represent Mr. Bassett's values and virtues. Uh, Again, biennial, so we're not having that this year. This year, we're having the community conversation, and it's intended to really draw in uh, a broader audience because uh, this particular committee might have started with the campus, but it encompasses not just the boundaries of the university, but the whole community because Mr. Bassett is important to all of New Britain, to all of Connecticut, and the the nation, and he was an international personage. We need to recognize that too.
2: And we'll have more details about that community conversation that you mentioned on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And you can learn more about Ebenezer Bassett. You can check out a story by Connecticut Public Radio's All Things Considered host, Ray Hardman. We've got a link up on our website, and we're going to tweet that at where we live. I want to thank Janet Woodruff, uh, vice chair of the Ebenezer D. Bassett Memorialization Committee, affiliated with the Center for Africana Studies at Central Connecticut State University, and also Dr. Evelyn Newman Phillips, member of the Ebenezer Bassett Memorialization Committee. She's also an anthropologist and serves as director of the Center for Africana Studies at CCSU. Evelyn and Janet, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. And letting our listeners know more about Ebenezer Bassett. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Senior producer Lydia Brown, special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at WMPR.org slash where we live.